0: Hi everyone, this is Food Talk the podcast with me, Danny Nirenberg. Today I'm talking to NPR news correspondent, Allison Aubrey. We talk about how food journalism is changing, her favorite food and nutrition stories, and how she once saved me at a awkward DC dinner. Please enjoy the show. Hi everyone. This is Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nierenberg. Um, so one of the best parts of, uh, of this podcast for me is that I get to talk to people who are who are friends and, and colleagues doing incredible work that I admire and people I aspire to be like. So I'm really t- excited to talk to NPR News Correspondent Allison Aubrey, uh, who is with us today. Uh, I'm kind of nervous to interview uh, um, Allison. <laughs> no, because yeah. you're you are you're such a great journalist. I listen to you all the time Your stories are heard on Morning Edition And All Things Considered You've won numerous James Beard Awards Including for Best TV Segment uh, Because of the the collaboration uh, NPR and PBS have together You're you're doing such great pieces Um, Your your radio coverage on food and nutrition Is is so well known And um, I'm obsessed with your your blog The Salt Um, You also have this really cool series of videos uh, On Tiny Desk Kitchen Which exposes truths in, in in the food system, and I have even been lucky enough to be interviewed by you, which like you know, I, I can retire now. Um, so, and and then one one final thing that I have to to tell our listeners is that. The first time I met you, you actually saved me because we were at this Atlantic. Uh, Atlantic had The Atlantic had some event uh-huh. uh, that I'd flown in for, and I guess I was speaking at it maybe. It was some sort of roundtable event, and it was very D.C. with a lot of guys in suits and you know, it was the cocktail hour and then the 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 dinner. And I yeah. didn't know anyone, and you like were like, who are you? Let's talk. <laughs> and so you just like saved me from being, you know— <laughs> oh, I almost forgot about that. Okay, all of that right back at you, Danielle.
1: I mean, everything that you have created, I, there's, what, what could I
0: have but admiration? Oh, that's sweet. I, I You know, I adore you. Um, You want to add anything to your bio? What did I miss?
1: Oh, well, you know, that was enough. <laughs> okay.
0: So, Allison, what I've been doing, uh, the first question I ask everyone for this podcast is is it's a way to get people you know, to, to know you better and to get to know your history. Um, what's your favorite food memory? A lot of people tell me about their childhood food memories, but you've eaten all over the country and all over the world. Do you have a favorite memory you wanna share?
1: Uh, um, you know, gosh, I, I, I've told the, I, I, you know, one of my favorite food memories is I lived with a family in Sochi when I was in college. This was the summer of 1990. And they lived in a Soviet black apartment building oh, over wow. in the Black Sea. And at that time, there were major food shortages and um, in that region. And I remember one day I went with my host mother to the market, and this big truck full of watermelons pulled up. And before the truck could even get to the market, the entire market rushed over. Everybody at the market ran over to the truck and sort of jumped wow. up on it. And started throwing watermelons out of the truck, and you know, people were just overjoyed to have a watermelon. And I remember thinking, like, taking it home and slicing it, and sort of the anticipation of something as simple as a nice, mm. fresh watermelon. And it made me realize that, you know, the, the my memory of the taste of it is so strong. I'd never tasted a watermelon quite so much as that moment. It made me realize um, what happens when people are deprived of it. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in this environment where we're lucky enough to be tasting all these wonderful foods all the time, and there's such a great food scene here in D.C., but when people are deprived of food,
0: something as simple as a fresh fruit can be so amazing. Absolutely. And, I mean, I think, you know, th- those kind of experiences, I bet a watermelon has never tasted as good a- again to you since then. Mm-hmm.
1: Probably not. Probably not. I think about it every time I slice a watermelon open. My-,
0: my children have heard that story how so many time. <laughs> That's great, though. Do you think you knew then I, I, that you wanted to do what you do now? Were you thinking when you were traveling and, and being a college student that this is what you'd be doing now?
1: Um, you know, not necessarily this, but it makes so much sense what I, what I do. I was a political science major, undergrad, um, and I moved to Washington. I was really intent on becoming a journalist. I lucked out in many ways. I had some great jobs early on. I cut my teeth learning to write the broadcast at the, at the McNeil-Lair NewsHour. Um, then I moved over to, I worked at C-SPAN for a year, where mm-hmm. I produced a documentary called, uh, where I helped produce a documentary called Road to the White House for a season, which is amazing because I got to travel all over um, with people covering the campaign. But, you know, there was something about that experience that changed my trajectory. As mm. cool as it was to be covering a presidential campaign, I realized it wasn't for me. I didn't like the idea of jumping from city to city and have a candidate dish out a little spoonful of information. And it made me realize journalists sometimes act like birds on a wire, right? We wait for a little bit of information to be dished out and then we tell it to the world. And it didn't seem very satisfying to me. Mm -hmm. Um, People, obviously political journalists who do it well, are amazing. But at that moment, I realized... Hmm, I'm probably not the kind of person that wants to be doing this kind of journalism. And so I kind of just over time moved towards the, you know, the way that, uh, you know, public policy and, and looking for the intersection of sort of public policy and health and food. It all came together sort of slowly over the next few years.
0: Right. And it makes sense because food is so political, especially now.
1: Absolutely. I mean, what you eat is a political act. I mean, as the awareness grows over what happens in the process of producing food, we can't help but start asking questions of, you know, what are the lives of people like who mm-hmm. grew this coffee bean? And, and I mean, food food is a political act. Once you open your eyes to all all of the systems that influence food workers and food production. Um, I mean, I'll never forget doing a series of stories in Guatemala about women who grow coffee and realizing, my God, look at this. Women are picking, you know, the cherry, picking the bean. They're they're doing all of this, this work. And then, you know, some big broker comes along, scoops up their entire years mm-hmm. worth of work, and the farmer makes nearly nothing. And... There's 10 more to few steps along the supply chain. And then who makes all the money on that coffee? The person at the closest point of the sale, the retailer. And I think people need to be aware of these things, that there are people behind the foods that they eat.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's one of the things I enjoy about your pieces is you put a human face to all of these issues. But as you, you know, you've been doing this for a while. Do you think people's eyes are open to the kind of abuses you described in Guatemala?
1: You know, I hope so. I think that um, we'll never have come to a time where 100% of people are aware or think about these things or place a high priority on understanding the stories behind their food. But if we even get to, uh, you know, a 10% of 10% of people care, that can make a difference because, you know, if 10% of people started putting mm-hmm. their money where their mouth was in terms of what they bought, think how that can shift markets. And I do think over time, you know, I think it, it, look at an issue like um, animal welfare. I mean, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it was, you know, extreme animal, you know, it would be the pitas of the world mm-hmm. trying to call attention to what they might see in a in a production facility. And, and you know, it would be very dramatic and might make it to mainstream news, but it wouldn't filter down into the consciousness of the general public. And if you look now at the kind of work being done by mainstream food producers um, on these issues, such as animal welfare, bearing witness to the idea, or sort of not bearing witness, but sort of big companies acknowledging like how animals are treated. Yes, I may end up eating this chicken, but how this chicken is treated is important. The idea that that is has become mainstream is a huge shift.
0: Absolutely. I've been surprised. I mean, not surprised, but gratified by that, too, over the last 15 years, because when I started working in food, like around that time, a little before then, and you were crazy if you were thinking about animals. You were one of those fringe people, like you described. And that, you know, I think it just speaks to the fact that, you know, consumers have a lot of power to to change, you know, what companies are doing.
1: Sure. And there's lots of
0: room for change. I think that's what makes this, this an exciting heat. Absolutely um, do you you know I know you get to interview a lot of different people, sort of like I do you know you get to talk to to farmers and scientists and politicians. Do you have a favorite type of person that you like to interview the most? Oh wow um, so well you know in journalism we're always talking about finding the real person,
1: right <laughs> We're always talking about less experts, more real people. I mean it runs the gamut uh, two to what well, I'm trying to think I'm going to talk about two very different kind of people, and then try to figure out, as I talk to you, what they have in common, because Mm -hmm, they're mm -hmm. two really fascinating people. Okay, just last night, I spoke to a woman who is a SNAP recipient. She's a single mom, um, lives in Denver, Colorado. I spoke, she was taking part in a uh, SNAP-Ed, a new nutrition education program called Cooking Matters, and she was talking with great delight about learning, you know, her eyes were lighting up as she was talking about um, the idea that she's finally learning to cook and this means that she'll be buying less packaged food and she's learning how to make her food dollars stretch more and she's learning about nutrient density and she's doing it because she really wants her daughter to Mm -hmm. have a better life. So the enthusiasm after having an aha moment that she's learned something that's going to make her life a little bit Better. It's so, um, it just makes my heart leap when I interview people who, you know, she sounds on the face of it a sad story. She's in many ways struggling. She's actually living in poverty. She is on, you know, government assistance for food. I mean, it sounds like a depressing story, but there was nothing about her that was depressed because she was so full of optimism. And I think that when people have. You know when when people are optimistic or excited or you know jazzed up about something, it just makes them, you know, a lot more interesting to talk to. On the total other side of the spectrum, I recently um, spoke to Dave Perry, a guy who um, is start. It's a, he's running a startup um, called Indiglo, and he mm-hmm. is trying to use biology to sort of replace chemistry when it comes to. Uh, Protecting food crops. So rather than putting a pesticide on something, he's looking to do the research uh, to use microbes that might do that. So, you know, microbes have evolved alongside plants for millions of years, and certain of these microbes might be helpful in making plants more resistant to drought or in helping farmers reduce fertilizer. Um, so, this idea that this man is on a path you know, of discovery and he's excited that he has something that could lead to transformation in the food system, something that he believes would be, you know, a better system. I guess that's the thing that links those two people together. I mean, they could be more disconnected in time, space or on the economic ladder. But I love people who are excited.
0: By something. No, me no, too. I too. mean, I, I got to talk to Howard Yana Shapiro earlier this week, and he's so excited. You know, he works for Mars Incorporated, and what he's doing is so exciting. And then, you know, the weekend before last, I'm tromping through, you know, pig pens with with Paul Willis and, and the Nyman Ranch team, and, you know, they're equally excited about what, what they're doing. So it's, it's just a, I like those kind of um, extremes of people who are doing really important work that needs more attention. Do you do you think you know because of people like you the issues that you I know you're passionate about even though you're you're you know an objective journalist do you think these um, these issues around food and nutrition and health and well being and and welfare of workers and animals do you think they're getting the attention they need from other media sources I mean you're good at it but are others.
1: I mean, I think in fits and starts, I mean, it's a really, the media landscape is changing so quickly. I feel like I've been saying that every year that I've been a journalist, but no, you know, never has it been more true than it is at this moment and never has it been, you know, an easier time to produce content. I think here's the thing. Um, Right now is this very unique moment in time where anybody can produce content. Like we can tell so many stories. Anybody can tell a story. Mm And that is so wonderful. So it's never been a better time to be a storyteller or journalist or somebody who wants to bring new information to people, whether it be digital platforms or print platforms or um, visual platforms. But it's never been a worse time to get paid, right? right. Um, for that work. So it's a very competitive landscape. And when you work as a professional journalist, you're working in a new setting where most things have a, you know, a much, much, much. Um, you know, a high, higher news impact. I mean, so what you have to do, let me actually restate that. When you're covering these issues in a newsroom, you're competing with people who are actually covering the news. right. right <laughs> so this right. is the problem, right? Every day, morning edition and all things considered, they want the top, we are a news organization. So the challenge of being sort of a beat reporter in that is that, you know, well, for instance, this week my colleague Dan Charles has been covering um, what's been happening in North Carolina and the wake of this hurricane, right. all the flooding, and how this is impacting the livestock down there. Um, so you use moments like this to weave in information to help people get a sense of how the food system works. That's one one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is that you have to come up with really, really creative techniques um, to make your story sound newsy, right? Right. Because if I go to my editors or the editors of the show and say, oh, I have another story about, you know, how to make, you know, how to bring healthy cooking and nutrition education to people, they'll be like, my God, Allison, you've done that story like 30 (laughs) times, you know? (laughs) know? (laughs) How can you do that story again? (laughs) <laughs> you know, like I'm constantly wanting to do stories to tell people, you know, what, you know, diabetes, the the, the lifestyle disease that costs our society billions, $200 billion a year and, you know, shortens the lives of people in their healthy years. This problem is completely solvable by changing what we eat. And I'll get all excited about another diabetes prevention story. And same thing. I hear, God, Allison, have you already done that story? And the problem is. People need to hear these stories even when they're not new. So it's my job to come up with these really inventive ways to create a news peg, right? So I'm constantly constantly looking for new data or new Mm -hmm. little points that I can turn into a newsy item. For instance, last year I came across this amazing data from Geisinger, their health Care firm in the Rust Belt area of Pennsylvania, and they did this pilot program where they um, made a whole bunch of people who were SNAP eligible and at risk of type two diabetes um, made them eligible for this program to get uh, free groceries for a year, and not only free healthy groceries, fresh fruit and vegetables, but uh, advice from a registered dietitian and, and chefs about how to prepare them, and they included a lot of elements in this program to really help motivate people to change their diet. And lo and behold, the Geisinger tracked a real decline in these people's a one resting a one C, which is a long-term measure of your blood sugar. Um, That's how diabetes these are there's thresholds above which if you are 6.0 or above with your a1c then you are considered to have diabetes so they wanted to know okay can we do this lifestyle change intervention and you know get get people's blood sugar down and the answer was yes and to me it wasn't you know hugely surprising because this has been shown before but you use this as an opportunity of like, oh, here's a new set of data. Let's use this new set of data as a peg to tell another story of another person who went through this intervention program and improved their life, lost weight, you know, reduced their blood sugar levels, and now is at, you know lower risk of the kinds of things that come along mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. diabetes such as heart disease.
0: No, I mean, I I know it's a constant like challenge to find those stories and to seek them out and then get them, you know, on the news every day. Do you think that because of your sort of foray into to video now that that's, you know, an easier medium in some ways, or is it is it just as challenging?
1: Oh, it's just as challenging because it's so much more costly to mm-hmm. produce those stories. I mean, um, you know, I can take me, I can get into my car, drive to Pennsylvania with my little, I mean, I can now record it on my iPhone. I, I don't, I usually record on a Morant professional recording, uh, recording device. But anyway, the point being, I can take my little kit, get in my car, drive to Pennsylvania and produce this lovely little feature about the Geisinger fresh fruit and vegetable prescription program. If I were doing that same story for television oh, my gosh, I would need a producer and a videographer. And, I mean, the cost of it rises exponentially just because of the number of people involved and sort of the expectations at the broadcast level about the video. So, you know, these video projects, they can have a lot of impact, especially when it's a
0: visual story. They're just harder to do Mm -hmm. because time and more money. Absolutely. I, I want to get back to, to politics for just a minute. You know, I, I, you live in D or you work in D.C. at least, you know, this is a very different environment than it was eight or 10 years ago. Can you talk about as a journalist, what's that, you know, in terms of sources and when you're calling, you know, federal agencies, uh, how, how are things, how are things, how, how easy is it to get a hold of experts?
1: Yeah, you know, I would say that for me, and, you know, I do a combination of sort of food stories and health stories, and, I mean, one of the surprises to me about this administration, I know we heard really early on a lot of um, stories about, you know, journalists being, you know, the administration telling certain agency mm-hmm. communications people, uh, you know, limit information to journalists, and we've heard a lot of those stories have been documented. One of the surprises to me um, the head of the Food and Drug Administration um, is very proactive and um, very much a proponent of things such as, you know, the menu labeling and um, giving consumers more information, helping consumers give, give them information to be- make better food choices. Um, he's been, uh, you know, he, he's constantly, he's very accessible. He writes a lot on the FDA blog. This is Scott Gottlieb I'm talking about. Um, he seems very genuinely mm-hmm. interested in helping people improve diets. Um, so, you know, you can't paint with a broad brush. I think that's been a welcome surprise to people in the to health advocates and sort of health health and food journalists um, that he has that interest and that he's been a proponent of saying, you know what? Yeah, like we need to have these calorie labels on restaurant menus because that's transparency. And transparency helps people make better decisions.
0: Right, right. I, I mean, I've sort of had the same experience, like t- talking to folks in Secretary Purdue's office, the US Secretary of Agriculture, you know, I didn't know that he was really interested in, in food waste. And that that's kind of what he wants to take on as his, his project, uh, right. uh, you know, and that's very hopeful. And I think, you know, Food waste is one of those those issues that can cross sort of political boundaries and um, bring both Absolutely. sides of the aisle together. Do you see... Oh, go true. I mean, because there's there's
1: ready there's solutions at hand, right? There's so many solutions outlined. You're exactly right about that issue. I mean, I, what I love about covering food waste is it's such a, you know, it's hard to get your head around how big the problem is, but it's also true that there are lots of ways to combat this like we have the solutions there, in to particularly in the you know in the u.s I i think it becomes harder when you're talking about why certain countries don't have the infrastructure to store or transport crops those are issues of sort of structural poverty and all of that so but a lot of the
0: there are some really good solutions to the problem absolutely I mean I think that's why it's so exciting do you have I know you write a lot about food loss and food waste is there a particular innovation you've seen that you're really excited about uh, you know in the U.S. that you or a particular company or consumer uh, innovation that you've liked I mean
1: yeah there are so many initiatives I was at a food waste summit in June and I got into a conversation with um a guy from Baldor, a big distributor of specialty was Thomas? <laughs> uh, you know what? I'd have to grab the card. <laughs> I ha- can't remember his name right off the top sure. of my head. Anyway, he we got into this conversation. He was sort of saying, you know, five years ago when this all sort of tumbled into the spotlight, they thought this was a completely fringy thing, this concept of somehow repackaging seconds or,
0: you mm-hmm.
1: know, um, giving giving, you know, fruits and vegetables that are misshapen or not quite perfect, um, giving them some sort of, um, putting them up on a pillar enticing chefs to want them, and and I I mean, I guess you can credit Dan Barber with creating this demand or this interest, but, you know, he told me that they now have this, you know, they now sometimes hear from customers um, who are specifically looking for the seconds, specifically looking for something that would have been considered subpar, you know, a few years ago, because there's this consumer demand for them, that those those little products are now profitable for them, and so that was an you know, a symbol to me of like, aha, this wasn't just a flash in the pan. there this is if this issue sticks, like it's resonating
0: right. People. It's really changing consumers' behavior and habits. and I think that's exciting, like, you know, um, you know, my mom, I've been talking about food waste for a long time, but I watched, she watched some CNN report over the summer and now she's obsessed. And I was like, Hey mom, I've been writing about this for a long time, but now she's like, <laughs> you know, she's buying more frequently and buying less and looking for those seconds and stuff. And I so- know
1: it was a theme. My daughter went to a summer camp this summer and, um, it wasn't the theme of the camp, but they were doing a lot of, um, cooking and, um, Uh, It was sort of food themed. And she came home with a little whiteboard and she hung it in the kitchen and she wrote on there. She's only seven, but she was Mm -hmm. writing on there, you know, um, these tips that they gave her. You're supposed to every time you go to the grocery store and you buy blueberries or strawberries or something that is highly perishable. You write it on your board so you don't forget to eat it. (laughs) And she told me this as if I this would be a completely (laughs) Comes up to me, and I'm like, you know, babe, I've been talking about this issue
0: for a long time.
1: I know you were only two when I did that <laughs> food waste, but great, I'm glad you, you're on to it now.
0: I know. I feel I feel like my mom's become this know-it-all about food waste, and she's like, did you know? And I'm like, yeah, yeah I know. I know. <laughs> um, you talked about sort of, you know, how the, the, the issues you're talking about, you, you would address them differently if you know, the food waste issue in particular, you know, that's addressed differently here than it is in other parts of the world. Do you ever get an opportunity to sort of bridge developing world issues with what's going on in the U.S.?
1: You know, in the last couple of years, I haven't had the opportunity to do that. I am hoping to do that. We certainly have a lot of, um, right here on the desk, I work at in NPR, so I'll just tell you a little bit about how NPR is structured. We have um We have desks and we have shows. We have people who produce Morning Edition and All Things Considered and our other shows. Then we have desks that are organized by beat. So reporters and correspondents typically work at the desk. So I'm organized under the science desk. This includes all the coverage that we do on food, health, nutrition, as well as all the coverage we do on climate, climate change, energy policy, um, and basic science. Basic sciences. We also, under the science desk, have an initiative, a blog that we call Goats and Soda. It's funded by a grant from the Gates Foundation, and um, does th- these folks on the Goats and Soda team do a lot of the international development stuff? Um, so I am actually hoping to piggyback or collaborate mm-hmm. with the Goats and Soda team in the coming years to do, you know, to do take a more global
0: look at some of these issues. Awesome. awesome i I know our time is limited but i I do want to ask you what you know with with the tiny desk kitchen one of the things you do is sort of break down myths in the food system. Is there a myth that you were surprised about that you you know you didn't know before you started researching and interviewing folks on it
1: ah a myth okay so uh, there's a meme kind of that comes up every couple of years and that is um did you know that there's sawdust in your cheese? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, Parmesan, yeah. <laughs> and
1: um, so it's funny because it comes up every few years, and every time it comes up, the story's written as if no one has ever <laughs> looked at this before, right? And so there's, you know, these, these fibers, these stabilizers that can be considered food grade that are often put into um into cheeses so that you buy them and they're already shredded it helps the cheese not stick back together it helps it's like a texturizer and um what's funny about it is that it's the kind of thing like at first it seems really really gross um but then on the second look it's sort of like this function it's it's serving this function mm-hmm. and I. the with true squatting is that you know there's there's always a little truth in the you know that headline isn't completely you know bonkers this idea that there could be Something like sawdust in your cheese, um, even though it's a little bit hyperbole. um, But the thing with true squatting is that, like, once you once you hear both sides of the story, and once you interview um, the industry that produces these fibrous products that are similar to sawdust um, that are used as stabilizers and cheeses, you might I might not choose to buy those cheeses, but I can know that they are, you know, they're they're safe. They're not going to hurt you, and they're not
0: really sawdust. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Last question. Has anyone ever recognized you because of your voice? Like before they looked at you?
1: Ah, um, that is a good question. (laughs) You know, I, I, on, on a couple of occasions, um, and that really kind of only happens in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Um, it did, it did happen on one occasion. We were at, I think a new year's day brunch at a friend's house and I was talking and older couple came over, and they were sort of hovering around, and they, <laughs> they did recognize my voice, and they, um, they, <laughs> yeah, they sort of made a to-do about it, and this actually gives, gave my husband like quite a big eye roll, as I imagine, um, but yeah, no, it, it, would, it does not happen as much as, you, as if you have a career in television, um, but uh, you know occasionally it
0: happens. <laughs> it's very cool. Uh, Allison, you inspire me. I love reading your stuff. I love watching the videos. You're, you're great. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Danny. It's been a lot of fun. Take care. Bye. All right. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out foodtank at foodtank.com, email me at danielle at foodtank.com, and follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at foodtank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk.